Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strong and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 130 of Let's Get Haunted. Episode 130, that means that we are now on the final episode of November. How does it feel? Almost one year down again. Whoa, yeah, it's crazy. And I just wanted to say, you guys, if the audio sounds weird, that is because this particular episode, we are doing remotely. I know there was a lot of haters out there who like to point out that we just got an office, but then I had to move to Georgia. But I have devastating news for you all, my haters. We are recording this remotely and we're doing great job at it. So you guys can cry. I am sitting here in our beautiful office. Um, It's looking very feral, but in a positive way. There's Mm -hmm. like boxes all over the place because we are working on getting some nice gift boxes together for our moderators that we love so much for Christmas. And so I just have boxes all over the ground right now. And Mimi's going to come over sometime next month and take a look at this wall because she is a professional interior designer. And then she's going to draw up some examples of stuff, send them to me and Nat, and we're going to give her our notes. And it's going to be great. So anyone worried about the office, don't be worried because we are working on making it bigger and better than ever. Although I was thinking the other day, like how ironic would it be if we've gone through all this trouble to make sure that the office still makes sense, even though you're in another state and then our landlords are just like, no, we don't want to renew. Well, that would be honestly fitting. fitting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? And you guys might be thinking, wow, how hard can it be to decorate a wall? Do you really need to hire a designer? And the answer is yes, because (laughs) we could just not get it together. I don't know. I don't want to put, you know, our whatever whiteboard in the middle of the wall if we're going to actually do a huge mural on it. Exactly. Yeah. And so then it ends up just stuff that's like resting against the walls. Yeah. Also, our landlord doesn't want holes in the wall, which, you know, under understandable they don't know us we're pretty chaotic tenants to have just because we have weird crystals and pictures of nick cage as jesus christ kind of like hanging up around the office yeah um but also you guys we are working on getting video implemented for next season and so that means that whatever is in the background on this big giant wall behind our table that you guys may have seen in our most recent vlog that means that that wall becomes very important because if we choose the wrong thing for that wall and then it doesn't make sense on video canceled we're canceled And we can't come back. Imagine if we put up a giant Confederate flag on that wall. That would be the wrong choice. No, no. (laughs) Strike that. What if we get a giant mural of the Yellow Deli bus with four buses melting into one and paint it and put it on the wall? There's an idea that wouldn't work either. By the way, about the Yellow Deli episode, as of right now, our friends that we interviewed for that episode are driving to San Francisco to protest at the YouTube studio headquarters, whatever the fuck it's called there. I don't know. I didn't even know if it was there or not. Maybe they're just psychos. And they're just like, yeah, we're going to go play with us, YouTube in San Francisco. And there's like no actual reason to be in San Francisco. Who knows? But they're doing that. And we wish them the best of luck, you guys. We need to rally behind them. Not literally, because I cannot go stand there at this moment. However, yeah. metaphysically. Yes, I know. That's so fucking crazy. So the reason why I found out. So that episode just went live last week. And then somebody DM'd us on Instagram and was like, hey, I went to go click on the link that you guys had put in your show notes to go watch that video that Reckless Bin and Lydia Mm -hmm. and Danny put up and it's not there anymore. It says that it's been copyright stricken or that YouTube took it down for violating terms of service. So then I texted Lydia and Natalia in a group chat and Lydia sent a voice memo back and was like, yeah, they took it 
down. We have to go to YouTube HQ. And then she just never followed up. So uh, Lydia, if you're out there listening, yeah. are you alive? Yeah. Is everything okay? Is the video back up? I just don't know. I'm not okay. I'm not positive. Just based off of what I gleaned from Ben's recent videos on YouTube, it was taken down for hate speech because it's like a religious organization, right? And he was calling them out. But it's not really oh. fair. Wait, wait, but he was saying it's bad for them to be racist and homophobic and bigoted and sexist. So that's, man, what an interesting conundrum. So it's mm-hmm. hate speech to point out that someone else is hateful. Yeah. I've, what, what are we supposed to do in this world? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I know some people were commenting being like, YouTube is on the Yellow Deli payroll confirmed? <laughs> question mark, question mark. And I'm like, I mean, I didn't say it. You guys said it and it's possible. It would make sense. It's also not possible. I don't know. Allegedly, <laughs> everything. I'm just like so worried that our podcast is going to get taken down now. I don't think so. I don't think our podcast is ever going to degress or progress. I think we are just stuck <laughs> in this loop. We're stuck in a plateau yeah we're we're just like <laughs> indie podcasters but you know what i really love it i love uh, the haunties you guys are amazing we don't want it any other way except for if one of you guys could be like a billionaire that would be great yeah. and if you guys were not aware yes our vlog did go up our vlog tour of our office did go up you got to go to youtube.com forward slash c forward slash let's get haunted natalia did just an a plus job on the edit it is very chaotic you'll never be bored the whole time you're watching and Go ahead and just give it maybe like a hundred streams just so that we can (laughs) trick the algorithm. Please, guys, don't let that flop. There's nowhere to go but up. The other thing I just want to say is thank you so much to the new people who have subscribed to our subreddit, which is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash let's get haunted. I'm pretty sure it's r slash let's get haunted if you know how to navigate Reddit. Because we, I believe, are almost at 2,000 people in the subreddit. And I would love to get more people on there because I spend an embarrassingly large amount of time on Reddit. That's like probably my number one website that I'm on every month. You know, like Mm -hmm. when your phone will send you your screen time report and it shows you the most used app. It's Reddit for me all the time. I know Nat is a frequenter of the Discord. I'm a frequenter of the subreddit. And I've also been trying to get more into TikTok. So if you guys want to follow us at Let's Get Haunted on TikTok, that is another option. Yeah, you guys, Ali has been cleaning up the TikTok game. I don't know if you know about this, but there are no TikToks left because she ate them all up. (laughs) Somebody commented and was like, did you just record 10 TikToks in one day? And I was like, yes. Now that I understand that the TikToks themselves are like maximum 15 seconds, I was Mm -hmm. like, why did I ever think this was complicated? You can record probably like 100 in a day if you wanted to. Right. If you had the gumption and the tenacity, you probably could. It's 100% like Chinese spyware on your phone, but it's okay with me. I don't really care about that. People keep telling me that like, oh, well, do you know this conspiracy? Like it listens to you it counts your key strokes it knows your passwords watch this joe rogan clip of him like reading out the terms and conditions from the tiktok (laughs) thing and i'm like cool listen to it watched it super interesting it's definitely pretty fucked up kind of weird i don't give a fuck i cannot say that any louder for those of you guys in the back i don't give a fuck who is spying on me not that i don't have anything to hide it's just that like i don't have anything to lose like so you guys are just gonna watch me destroy my life cool who cares i was literally just talking to someone about that the other day because my boyfriend is like it's chinese spyware you can't have it on your phone the governments who are spying and who knows what they're getting and i and i was talking to audrey about it and she was like yeah my boyfriend says the same thing and we both just look at each other and we're like i don't care like at the 
the same time we were like I don't I don't give a shit maybe like five to seven years ago I would have been like really worked up about it and been like oh yeah it's just advertisers and then they like are putting on my feed for social media that like I should buy this coat because they know that I want that coat and now I'm just like fuck yeah I want that coat I'm gonna buy it from this link I I just did that the other day Instagram did a targeted ad at me for a a robe that looks like a strawberry <laughs> and I was staring at it and I was like yeah I'm just gonna buy it and I just I bought and it hasn't arrived yet and I this was like a few weeks ago so it could have been a scam that but sounds really cute we'll see I'll wear it uh on a future episode perhaps by the way guys if this is your first time listening to this episode and you want to skip this whole beginning intro and get straight to the story you can open up the show notes right now the very first sentence in all caps will say what time to skip to so that you can get right to the story and you can skip our personal hauntings but you might want to stick around as you you know what you should never skip you should never skip an opportunity to buy the lawnmower 4.0 right. because this episode is sponsored by manscaped sure is, you guys sort of i don't know the manscaped relationship is seeming to fizzle out so you guys if you've been thinking about <laughs> oh you know what i'm gonna buy one of those manscaped products that they talk about because they sound so good and they're doing such a good job at these ad reads and you know what maybe I didn't really even think I needed that product they were talking about but I like them so much that I'm going to support them but then you were like no I don't have to do it right now every episode is sponsored by Manscaped so I'll just do it another episode I'm here to tell you that this sponsorship might end abruptly based off of (laughs) what I've been reading between the lines it's starting to look dim and grim guys so please fucking buy the shit that we're talking about we're here to just calm your fears and tell you all about the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer which helps reduce nicks and cuts and ingrown hairs it also reduces the risk of grooming accidents if you've ever had a grooming accident you know that those are the worst kinds of accidents so you need to buy the lawnmower 4.0 if you've ever had a grooming accident if you are grooming your nether regions it is probably because there is a high probability that another person is going to see those regions soon Mm -hmm. that is like 90 percent of when i finally am like all right it's time the bush is out of control we've got to get this under control george bush he made it so that you gotta cut that bush you gotta eliminate that bush that bush has had uh eight years in office and it's time to just groom it up a bush has never led to something that wasn't haunted how about the most famous bush of all time the burning bush led to someone being crucified so you guys (laughs) cut your bushes down one time I was grooming the bush in my single days and I did nick myself and it was bleeding a lot. And then when I finally got it to stop bleeding, it just looked like I had a giant scab. It was the inner thigh, which is like, there's no way to hide that. And then people are just like, do you have scabies? I don't know. I don't want to ask that question because it seems really personal. So I'm just going to deduce from the scabs that you have all over your body that you have scabies. And now people think that you have scabies. And then maybe they just misheard someone else saying that you had scabies and they thought that you had rabies. And now someone's going to come to your house with a gun and put you out of your misery and it's all because (laughs) it's because you didn't buy the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer from manscaped and uh, let me tell you some more about this trimmer you can use it in the shower it is unisex does not matter what gender you are if you have hair down there you can use it and i'm here to tell you that that is a fact because my boyfriend has one and i have one and i put a little piece of tape on mine so that we know which is mine and which is his because i don't recommend sharing things like that but we both store them in the shower and so far so good now the next thing I would like to tell our listeners about is the product that 
reduces foot odor. Do you have foot odor? If you've got foot odor, I bet you do. And let me tell you, as someone who who doesn't like to wear socks because I am chaotic neutral, if you don't wear socks and you work in an outdoor environment where your feet are constantly sweaty and constantly rubbing against your shoes, even if you do wear socks, because sometimes I wear socks and it doesn't seem to make a difference, you know that your shoes get real ripe real Mm -hmm. fast. One thing that you can do to help reduce that foot odor is by buying Manscaped's foot odor spray. Now you can spray that inside your shoes. You can spray it directly on your feet. Does it eliminate 100% of the odor? No. Does it make it much better? Yes. That way, when you're taking your shoes off, when you get home, your dog doesn't come over to your shoes and start to chew on them because they think it's a dead animal. Think about how romantic it is. Long day of work, chopping logs and going up mountains. You're now at your front doorstep and you're taking off your steel-toed boots and inside by the warm fire is Mrs. Claus. She's excited to see you. She hears the little spritz, spritz, and she's like, ooh, tonight is the night because Santa only spritz. It's his feet with the Manscaped products on nights that we're going to smash. And then Mrs. Claus is happy. And that could also be your family as well. What Natalia has just brought up here is something that I would like everyone to work on for this new year as well. Let's make our families have a Pavlovian response to (laughs) the spritzing noise of Manscaped products. It could be the ball deodorizer. It could be the foot odor reducer. The crop reviver. It could be any of the spritzing products they have i want you to just train your family to every time they hear that spritzing noise they know that something positive Mm. is going to happen their endorphins are lifted maybe you make dinner every Mm. night for your family and so you're going to start spritzing that ball deodorizer throughout the house (laughs) right before you start cooking maybe you're going to give that special someone in your life a flower Mm. uh, every time that you spritz and so now eventually they're going to hear that spritz and they're going to get horny for you if someone could do a fan story like a wattpad about any manscaped products it would definitely be these iconic trio of spritzers i agree these spritzing products are here for you this holiday season making sure that your season is bright and shiny as a christmas ball ornament (laughs) on the tree we're just so grateful to manscaped for continuing to sponsor these episodes and if you would like to help us continue this sponsorship if you would like to help the special person in your life groom themselves in a way that is not frightening, then I suggest that you get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com mm-hmm. with code let's get haunted. That is all one word, all caps, get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code let's get haunted. Yep, guys, I cannot stress this enough. I'm pretty sure they're going to fire us. So please <laughs> use that code. Uh, steal your parents' credit card. Do what you have to do. Buy Manscaped products as if the yellow deli is coming after mm-hmm. you and your life depends on it. And the only way they won't kidnap you and throw you into their melting peacemaker bus is if you produce the receipts for all of the Manscaped products that you have bought this week. Wow, I wish everyone could live their life like that. You know who's really taking advantage of their lives and spreading joy around? Our donors. That's right. Woo, 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 woo. This week, I would love to thank Malik and Peter Barker, as always, for their very generous donation. Jim H., 
gave a very generous donation of $100. Jim H., thank you very much. Is it Jim Hansen, the guy with the puppets? Could be. Who knows? I think he died. It's a ghost. Oh, wow. That's even more haunted. Thank you very much, Jim H. Confirmed. Gentry B., thank you very much. Coming in always consistently. Curie S., Skylar L., again with a very generous donation. Thank you very much, Skylar. Alicia J., Kathy G., Amber A., and your nowhere nor v is it nowhere n o i r e is it noir v noir i would say noir and noir v thank you guys very very much we appreciate you guys for donating if you'd like to donate to us you can venmo at dog mom usa or you can look in the show notes pick any of the links in the show notes and just a quick reminder that this is the final episode of november if you would like to buy any of the items that are on our website for your christmas town time then you should go to letsgethaunted.com we have hats we have tote bags we have socks and stock is limited mm-hmm. as soon as they're sold out we are not producing them again that's how our merch works is it a smart business idea no because sometimes people are like hey i missed the last merch drop and i want a robe yeah. where are the robes and then we have to be like sorry we burned a bridge with that <laughs> manufacturer that made those robes so now we can't have them anymore so you never know if we're actually gonna have any of the products ever again that are up on the store i would vote no probably not so you need to go up there buy everything you can and then and eventually we will launch something else, but probably not the same thing as before. Mm-hmm. Should we get into the story or personal hauntings? Do you have a personal haunting? I have a very haunted personal haunting, but I want to tell you it in person uh, because I just don't feel like it's going to hit the same through a Zoom screen. Mm-hmm. So I think perhaps next episode... I will have to tell you in person. It actually is so haunted that this entire week I have been feeling like, am I like, is like one of the medications I'm on causing like mental side effects? And I like Googled all of the medications. I was like, oh, do can any of these like cause psychosis? Like, can any of these cause like weird brain thoughts? Right. And none of them, none of them do. And so I'm like, all right, I think this might actually be a, a personal haunting then. My very first possible paranormal experience. Wow. So stay tuned if you guys want to hear about that. Yeah. Um, but not this episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. To what about that. you, Natalia? You have any personal hauntings to oh, share? Oh, you know, I've had several personal hauntings that I've just been sitting on acting like everything's fine. But I don't know. Through the Zoom screen, is it going to hit the same? I don't know. Yeah, that's how I feel too. Actually, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about your move. If that's something you want to share. Yeah, yeah, you guys. Okay, so I moved into Atlanta. Shit has been a shit show since I got here. The baby was really unhappy. He like won't sleep through the night anymore. He wouldn't eat. He was losing weight. He wouldn't take his naps. It was like literally having a toddler who was like a newborn at the same time. It was really sad, but positive haunting. He seems to be doing a lot better now. So I think things are going to get better. But at first when we moved into this house, it was like I could not get anything done. I sent Alyssa a video once of him just like, hugging my legs it was like that all the time I know it's really sad you just feel bad for them now do you think though because we've talked about how children can sense ghosts better than adults do you think your new home is haunted and that's why he was having trouble adjusting at first I don't know I had that thought because this house is actually amazing you guys it's like fall here all the trees are like fucking orange and brown yellow and shit and it just like looks really romantic there's like geese flying around in the morning and the evening deer drinking in our backyard like it's idyllic the whole house is just absolutely fantastic but it's weird to me because I feel like the realtor who gave it to us was kind of like weird like I don't know he he just gave me like weird vibes and I don't know if it was just because he was like dejected because he was like oh the 
market is falling and I'm not going to get what I wanted for this house, you know, because like maybe if I would have sold it like six months ago, it would have been worth more. Right. So I don't know. I was just like, he seems off. And then there was like a few things that were off about it too. Like the master bedroom has a deadbolt lock on it, not like a normal lock. Like you have to have a key to open it. And so I was like, what's the deal with that? And then downstairs, there's this weird ass room that looks like a big pantry, but it also has a dead block on it. And then on the floor, it's hardwood floor and you can see where the hardwood kind of like dips down. And if you stand on it, it's fucking hollow. And I was like, I know there's a fucking dead body down there. I know shit's fucking weird. What the fuck? Right? If it's not a dead body, then my second thought was perhaps it's a safe. And turns out we talked to the realtor today. There is a safe down there. Now, what's in there? I don't know because he only found out about it from the previous owners and they never like ripped up the ground and took the safe out to see what's in there. But I'm thinking to myself, are these like, you know, super the world's going to end people where they had like just a room storage of like water and food and guns and gold? Like, you know, were they like those people who went missing in Oklahoma the Jameson family, you know, they like had yeah. stuff to go off the grid. Or was it a giant meth lab? And they were like, oh, where's a perfect place to put a meth lab? How about in this nice neighborhood at this nice house where there's deer outside? No one will ever <laughs> suspect it. So let's put it here. This is perfect. Can you film yourself going in there? I want to, I want you to like rip it up. Oh, that would be perfect for the TikTok. And go down right. there and film it. Yeah. For the TikTok. Yeah. Be like, hey, I moved into, I just moved into a house and was standing here and heard that it was hollow and the realtor just check the blueprints and yes there is something down there and now we're gonna see what it is well listen to this shit gets even weirder so then we're walking around downstairs and it kind of seems like unfinished you can just tell it's not finished the light switch covers have not been put on stuff like that like the fixtures in the ceiling were not all the way finished whatever and there's this one room that just has mirrors all the way around it and it has no floor and the guy was like yeah this room they were using as like a, a gym and then he was like in this is just unfinished and he opened another door that was like inside the fucking wall I don't know it was literally like the size of my apartment in LA but it was just like unfinished basement inside the fucking wall okay I know that like a normal person would be like oh cool I can put a movie theater in here but in my mind I was like was this connected to the safe underground where these people fucked up are all of these mirrors here because this was some weird kind of dungeon where they were like butchering <laughs> their bodies and like putting them in this strange unfinished basement which they just painted with this weird paint because there was actually blood on the walls i don't know and the reason i know you didn't say anything but i'm gonna stop you right there and the reason that i thought all of this was because when we first got here i was like out on the balcony overlooking how beautiful nature is and I see these gorgeous birds, eastern bluebirds. They've got blue backs and then their bellies like kind of red. I was like, oh, those are so pretty and whatever. Then they come back the next day and there's a dead one just laying on the (gasps) ground. One of those eastern bluebirds. It looked super, super like alive. So I thought maybe it's just been stunned or something, you know? So I walk over to it and I touch it against everyone's will. They were very (laughs) unhappy with my decision to touch the dead bird. And it was still warm and it was still like fluid, you know, like moving. Like I like really gently was touching it and its body was still soft. Like there was no rigor mortis or whatever. I think maybe perhaps it ran into the glass. I don't know. And then I was so sad that I started crying because I was like, oh my God, this is just a symbolism of how like my 
selfish decision to live in this nice house is now taking the life away from this the wildlife here and, and everyone was like okay please stop crying it's <laughs> not that big of a deal but I was like no you guys don't get it because a dead bird is a bad omen and if you knew anything about the hauntings that you would know that there's a bad <laughs> you know, I just went off that was like our my first fight in the home with my fiance was about the significance of this dead bird now I did a quick google search and found out that the eastern bluebird is representative of a spirit now oh, that shit. caused me to spiral even further because I was like what does it mean because the people when they see them it's like someone who died that's close to you is visiting you right like a spirit is visiting you now what does that mean if a spirit visits you and dies fuck okay wait wait wait. all right all right let me okay let's think about the best case scenario best case scenario a spirit visited you saw how beautiful your new home is and how well you're doing and was like i don't need to visit her anymore i can now move on to the next life and just dropped dead in its physical form and now has ascended Mm. to the next plane of existence maybe that's Mm. what happened yeah, one of the um, people that was there checking the termites that had nothing to do with me or my life at all saw me really upset and crying and was like, it's okay, like, th- the next life that he went to was better than this one. And I was like, okay. Well, that was very nice of the termite man. <laughs> yeah, anyways, so it's been ups and downs to answer your question. Well, I'm uh, very excited for you to discover what is in the hollow space beneath your floor, because that is how every horror movie ever starts. Please film a TikTok about it. This is weird, but I don't know if it's just because it's across the Zoom universe, but on Zoom, you look like Ashley Tisdale. Okay, when I was in high school, before she got her nose job, High School Musical was out. Like Everyone was like, oh my God, High School Musical is great. And then people were like, wait a minute, you kind of look like Ashley Tisdale. And then she got her nose job, and now nobody ever says that. So thank you. Ashley Tisdale uh, modified her nose so that it didn't look like mine. And you know what, Ashley? (laughs) That is your right as, as a citizen, but what was wrong with my nose? No, I think your nose is different than hers was before her your nose is like skinny and sexy oh ooh, thank you if someone threw an object at your face <laughs> your nose is so like dainty that it would become damaged no, no. where ashley tisdale's face before the object would just bounce off not because her nose there was anything wrong oh, it was just more bulbous i understand so hers was more hardy and right. mine is more like a delicate little dangling ornament on <laughs> the tree of my face yeah love that so i don't think that there's any connection with people calling you ashley tisdale before the nose job and after i think people probably just forgot about her because she faded from <laughs> the public's imagination after high school musical that's probably true well you guys hopefully we don't fade from your mind's eye and hopefully you continue to listen to let's get haunted into the new year because we've got many excellent hauntings Mm -hmm. ready to regale you with yeah you guys let me know what do you think the fuck is in my house do you think there's dead bodies there do you think the bird dying is just nature and i just need to grow some balls and get used to it because that's what nature is you stupid fuck (laughs) or do you think it means something mysterious mysterious and magical do i need to plant a clove where that individual died let me know ali the story that i have for you today is highly requested by you actually by me yeah i think actually there was one time where you might have mentioned oh you should do an episode on that (laughs) so i really just decided to go with it because it just called to me one might say this episode is like weird as fuck it's it's really a genre bending true crime buddy comedy adventure sci-fi thriller 
It's like what bridesmaids meets weekend at Bernie's meets blue streak. And I had a lot of fun with this one. But I will say that this story is about a person who lived a very hard and fast lifestyle fueled with addiction. And as we know, addiction is a very heavy burden to bear because of that dark truth. I have chosen personally to omit some of the details of this story, not any haunted details, but just like bummer, sad family shit that nobody's like super excited to talk and know about, you know? Yeah, I that's probably a good choice because we're all here to get haunted and be triggered but in a way that doesn't make us spiral if you make the drive from la to joshua tree national park you will join the ranks of countless city dwellers who made the same historic trip before you likened to a pilgrimage of lost souls a weekend trip to joshua tree offers reprieve from the stressful modern lifestyle and serves to ignite any dimmed flames of inspiration or illuminate whatever gratitude one might have misplaced while chasing dreams. Upon arriving in the famous desert landscape, the first thing you will notice is the silence. Compared to the constant whine of city life with its buzzing helicopters, wailing sirens, and beating of horns by frustrated commuters enduring rush hour traffic, the desert's humble silence is perhaps the most valuable feature such a place has to offer. The second thing you will notice upon arriving in Joshua Tree is the energy. The air feels thicker than most, as if it somehow contains more life in it. Sunsets and sunrises feel more dramatic against the backdrop of rocky mountains and twisted cactus shadows. A day lasts forever. A night lasts even longer. A personal problem feels less daunting. A difficult decision feels easier to make. That breakup seems like it really was for the best. The last line of a poem comes to you. The final scene of your screenplay materializes. The wind whistling gives you the melody to your next song. It's this healing and creative power that the desert is known for. Joshua Tree has long stood as an enchanted place full of whimsy and magic, both attracting chaos and dispersing it. Thrill seekers, peacemakers, artists, and those seeking answers all come to Joshua Tree for its wonder and intangible spirit. But did you know that Joshua Tree is also known for being haunted? Some of those spirits still linger. Allie, do you know who Graham Parsons is? Okay, is this the guy that you were telling us about a couple episodes ago who was like a musician and his friends stole his body? Yes. That is exactly what I'm going to tell you about today. The story is super haunted. It's really fun. I thought it would be a good way to end November because I feel like the Yellow Deli was too real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now we need something that's just like, you know, a nice palate cleanser. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to hear about this. Here's a brief summary of his impact on the music industry because I didn't actually realize that this guy was like a big deal. Ingram Cecil Connor III was born November 5th, 1946, but he's known professionally by his artist name, Graham Parsons as an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and pianist. Parsons recorded as a solo artist and with the international submarine band The Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Wild 
wait, I know who the Flying Burrito Brothers are. Oh my God, I'm so happy that you know. Yes, my dad, my dad listens to them. Okay, so I was about to say like all of the shit I'm going to talk about today was literally like reminding me so much of everyone's dads. Yeah. And this is basically everyone's dads, you guys. Oh, I'm very excited now because look, you guys, if you have a dad and your dad is like a stereotypical dad, who like yeah. listens to classic rock and like right. still talks about how he went to like Cal Jams festival in the 1970s, then guess what? <laughs> you and I share a thread of commonality and we are now about to learn about something that can make us relate to our dads better. Yeah, wait till you tell this story to your dad. There's so many names in this before that I had never actually like known what they were. My dad's always like, have you heard this like random musician? I'm like, no dad, like people don't <laughs> even listen to musicians who like play the guitar anymore. Like right. Right, Listen right. to Creed 24-7. <laughs> yes, Father, we listen to Creed and nothing else. This is a, basically a dad episode, you guys. So it's real comfy. Put your Love dad it. hats on. And let's go for a little spin here. Love it. Despite the fact that most of us have probably never heard of him, his influence in the music industry is actually pretty lasting due to the fact that Graham was a pioneer in his genre. You see, Graham popularized what he called Cosmic American Music, which is a hybrid of country, rhythm and blues, soul, folk, and rock, or as we call it today, country rock. Graham served as the creative inspiration for some of the biggest names in music today, like the Rolling Stones, the Eagles, and Wilco. For his efforts as a father of alt-country and country rock, Graham was awarded by the Americana Music Association with the President's Award and ranked number 87 on Rolling Stone's list of 100 Greatest Artists of All Time, right between Tupac and Miles Davis. Wow, those, I mean, that's pretty fucking influential. All Music quoted Parsons as being enormously influential for the country and rock genres. And All Music also noted that Parsons blended the two genres to the point that they became indistinguishable from each other. So he basically was a legend, created this whole sound. If you've heard the Flying Burrito Brothers, then you know the sound that I'm talking about. It's um like whimsical, rhinestone, cowboy, like desert tripping music. I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, it's like bluesy country rock. So I'm not going to give you his whole life story, but here's a little bit of the most interesting parts. Parsons was born in Winter Haven, Florida, but soon after the family moved to Georgia. In Georgia, when Parsons was only nine years old, he saw Elvis Presley live and decided to start playing music himself. Parsons came from a really wealthy family, but his life was not without suffering. His childhood was full of hardships. His father committed suicide two days before Christmas when Parsons was only 12. After losing his dad, the family moved back to Florida and his mother remarried. Then Parsons spent his teens playing in different local bands, some of which had members who would go on to become professional musicians. Parsons' stepfather purchased a nightclub where Parsons' band was able to play for locals. That club is called Dairy Down and you can still visit it today. It has a plaque out front denoting its historical significance as a Florida heritage site. On the day Parsons graduated high school, his mother died from cirrhosis, a disease of the liver that affects primarily alcohol. A few sources differ on whether or not it was actually the day he graduated high school, but nonetheless, she was either dying or dead the day he graduated high school. Parsons spent the summer after her death touring, and then he attended Harvard, probably through his stepfather's ties. 
Although Parsons attended Harvard University to study theology, he rarely attended class and dropped out after only one semester, three months. However, it was during those short three months while attending Harvard that Parsons became interested in country music. According to the legends, Parsons saw Merle Haggard during college and became hooked on the genre. He left Harvard and formed a new band with friends that he had met and headed to New York City. The band came to be known as the International Submarine Band. So as you can see here in this photo, this is of the International Submarine Band album, Safe at Home. Yeah, so Natalia is showing me a black and white album cover. There are four guys sitting on something. It's kind of hard to tell what they're sitting on because it's like a photo, but also a drawing. All four of them are wearing like Colonel Sanders I know. little bow tie it's literally things. Colonel Sanders. Yeah, it's like not a bow tie, but it's not a tie, but it's not a it's bolo just a tie. Ribbon. Yeah, it's like a ribbon, and they are kind of dressed up. Like one guy has really big mutton chops, another one has a really big yeah. mustache, and is carrying what looks like a Smokey the Bear Park Ranger hat. Like they're just like yeah. old school country rock musicians yeah it's like pretty epic so the band wasn't having a whole lot of luck in new york city so parsons convinced everyone to move to hollywood in hollywood they had a lot more luck and they opened for acts like the doors yeah who hasn't heard of the doors like literally time that's embarrassing the band was beginning to take off but moving to la had a cost Parsons' battle with addiction began in Hollywood. You see, Parsons was incredibly talented, yet his struggles with addiction and drug use were complicated. Sometimes his addiction overshadowed his abilities and hindered him. Other times it provided sorrow from which he pulled inspiration, and it even kept him going at times when he was feeling really down. Around the time that their first album came out, Parsons had a daughter with his girlfriend, and they named his daughter Polly. Parsons quit his band after meeting Chris Hillman, the bassist for a really popular folk band that was called The Birds. He joined The Birds and influenced their sound with some vocals to be more country than what it was considered to be by fans at the time. And The Birds' greatest album, which is Sweetheart Rodeo, is the album that Graham Parsons helped to influence. But at this time, the holds of his addiction were starting to tighten their grip. LA was hard for the boys, to say the least. So here's some photos of Yeah, so I'm looking at a photo of a young dude, looks like maybe late teens, early 20s. I guess he could be older. Maybe he just like, I feel like when you're living this kind of lifestyle, you either age really fast or you never age. Right. He has a six pack of Corona underneath his elbow. He's in the backseat of a car, kicked back with his legs up, smoking a cigarette. He's got, yeah, like that shaggy brunette hair that maybe you picture like Jim Morrison from the doors. Now here he is. This next photo Nat is showing me he is on the hood of a car and just yeah just like lounging. He's got these black boots on. He's got a jean jacket and jean long pants and just looks like a total rock star. Yeah, he looks really cool. I will say yeah. that. When I was doing this episode, I was like, God, I need like to be cool. Yeah, I think that every day. <laughs> While touring with the birds in 1968 through England, Parsons became friends with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. And apparently when um, Keith Richards and Parsons met, they just instantly became best friends, like inseparable. And here is a photo that demonstrates that relationship, which I find kind of funny. Oh, 
oh how cute okay yeah so this is a picture of keith richards and parsons graham parsons yeah. and so graham parsons is wearing a leather jacket he again has he's got like a little turtleneck on brown turtleneck you can't tell but they're both on a motorcycle graham parsons is driving the motorcycle and keith richards is like hugging him on the back of it oh that's so cute and keith richards has like yeah these giant like 1970s bug eye sunglasses on and a little like scarf around his neck <laughs> i know they look like you know, fun i love like how the 70s rock stars dressed like maybe not intentional but they were sort of like gender bending with their fashion like it was a little bit feminine and absolutely it was so flamboyant before that time men were supposed to be sort of conservative and like women were the flamboyant ones who had bows and dangly things and buttons and you know all kinds of rhinestones and, and big sunglasses yeah exactly yeah. and they were totally challenging that supposedly after meeting mick jagger and keith richards part Parsons refused to go with his band, The Birds, on tour in South Africa. And some people say, oh, it's just because he liked the Rolling Stones so much better. He just wanted to hang out with them. And other people are like, no, it's because he didn't like apartheid. Some people were like, he didn't give a fuck about apartheid. He was like apolitical. And other people were like, no, 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 he was. Okay. Parsons cut ties with The Birds and he began living at Keith Richards' house in London. Based on what I read, Keith Richards and Graham Parsons became besties pretty much immediately. And Parsons wasn't just like this house guest that wouldn't leave. He was really beloved by Keith Richards. They shared a lot of interests and one of them was music. But Parsons had such a rich library of American country music to listen to and play, which was super new and different for this Englishman, Keith Richards. Keith was just fascinated by Parsons. So while Parsons was crashing at Keith's house, this love of American country music sort of rubbed off on Keith Richards. And some people think that the Rolling Stones sound was changed by the relationship that Keith Richards and Graham Parsons had. According to Wikipedia, a Rolling Stones confidant and close friend of Parsons who would go on to become his road manager, Phil Kaufman, remember that guy because he's going to come up later, recalled that Parsons and Keith Richards would just sit around for hours playing obscure country records and trading off on various songs with their guitars. Also, Graham was really unique in his writing. He didn't write like with a pen and a paper and then try to later sing a song, uh, which is what most musicians do. He instead would just pick up a guitar or like sit down on a piano or just get an instrument and start playing and then just start singing whatever words come to him. So it was really interesting for musicians who worked the other way to sort of see that happening. It was probably pretty magical. Basically, Graham Parsons was, was like what the annoying guy who picks up a guitar at a party aspires to be. Right. Like he was actually good and people actually wanted him to start playing in the middle of a party. Whereas <laughs> that guy that you probably know dear listener uh at any house party you've been to like that picks up a guitar and everyone's like okay we're moving the party to the garage because this guy in the living room <laughs> is like ruining the vibes this so graham parsons was the antithesis to that yes exactly it was around that time that parsons and richards became heavily interested in a particular southeastern california national monument which is today known as joshua tree national park ali do you know about joshua tree yeah, of course. So actually, Natalia and I have been to Joshua Tree on many, many occasions, one of which was filmed. This would have been like, what, 2017 or 18, like many years ago. Yes. Um, Natalia and I went to Joshua Tree and she filmed it and it is up on her personal YouTube channel. If you want to just, I think all you have to do is um, go on YouTube and type into the search bar like Nat Strawn uh, Joshua Tree and it should pop up. But yes, I have been there to answer your question. I've been there quite a few times. 
Yeah, you guys, I'll link that in the show notes, the vlog Natalia and Alyssa go to Joshua Tree. Yeah. Don't you feel like Joshua Tree has like a weird vibe about it? It like feels like you're being watched the whole time you're in the park. Yeah. So Joshua Tree, for those who don't know, is a desert. It is a national park slash desert slash also a city, I'm pretty sure. And Mm -hmm. there's like one bar. I don't even know if there's Mm -hmm. a grocery store or not. And you show up you go to the park ranger station and you can rent like oh i want to um set up my tent on this campsite for the night but the campsites are because it's a desert for those of you that are from like forested regions it's it's nothing like camping obviously in a in the national park that you might picture in your mind because it's just big rocks sand super hot cacti and it's pretty barren and at night you can literally hear everything because it is so quiet mm-hmm. and everything echoes so if somebody like you know two miles away at a different campsite like yells you can hear them and it's creepy it's very creepy it's just stone rock that's bouncing sounds off of everything there's no like grass or lush trees or you know like a season of fallen leaves to bury some of the sound so everything just echoes and travels and it yeah it's a weird feeling it sort of feels like I don't know it feels like you're being watched like I know when we were staying there in a tent in the vlog we talked about this but at in the middle of the night it like literally feels like someone's right outside your tent because you can hear like a pin dropping and so I kept hearing I don't even know it might have been me moving it might have been me shifting my weight in the bed but it felt like someone was like crunching on gravel outside yeah I definitely thought we were going to be murdered but also also for those um we might have some listeners who are like from the desert desert people are different like desert people that live and thrive in the desert are much Mm -hmm. different than like city dwelling folks and even like country dwelling folks like it's just a totally different type of person and so when Natalia and I had gone to the only bar in the area there were like desert folks hanging out in the bar and I don't know it's just such a different different vibe and I remember there was this old man sitting at the bar um not that old I mean maybe like in his 50s and he just like turned around and I remember I was wearing like a Dodgers hat and a Dodgers jacket and then he's like trying to he was super drunk and he's like trying to talk to Natalia and I about the Dodgers and then he was like asking us where we were staying that night and like he was probably just trying to make conversation but like the vibes of like locals is like much different and then we were like oh shit like is he gonna like come try to find us tonight and like murder us in our tent I remember that very vividly it's so it's so small that like if you're at the one restaurant bar which we were at and someone says like oh you know you're staying in Joshua Tree tonight if they wanted to they could just drive around for 20 minutes and until find they found you. you yeah because it's like literally a barren desert and the only put like you can see your tent for miles and miles exactly and miles. there's nothing preventing you from being seen and I think when Natalia and I went I think it was like a random like Thursday night or something there was nobody at the adjacent campsites so it was just us in our little shitty tent and nobody else for miles Joshua Tree has its own enchanted spiritual and paranormal history and it's frequently associated with the supernatural, paranormal, and the occult. In Season 1, Episode 4 of the Travel Channel series called Mysteries at the National Parks, Joshua Tree is visited and touted as being host to, quote, a Bigfoot-like creature and UFO sightings, end quote, suggesting that the park might be, quote, ground zero for alien genetic experiments, Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Some people believe that Joshua Tree is haunted, According to Ghost Adventures by usghostadventures.com, quote, 
Interestingly, several accounts from others have explored the area not under the influence and claim encounters with witches, spirits, and UFOs. Desert delirium is what skeptics call it in some reads. In most reads, though, Joshua Tree is described as a magical, spiritual, and mysterious place. The area holds hundreds of accounts of missing persons, unexplained deaths, UFO encounters, and ghostly happenings. Every experience in life is through the eyes and ears of the beholder. So if you are skeptical about these things being real, that's fine, but never discount it, because many believe that denial opens the portals for the unknown to take hold, even more than belief in these phenomena, end quote. Sorry, I just thought that article was like super metal at the end. It's when very it was intense. Just like... <laughs> so, so basically, Ghost Adventures is saying the more you try not to believe, the more real it gets. Yeah, it's not Ghost Adventures like Zach Baggins. This is called U.S. Ghost Adventures. Oh. So they're a little bit different. Um, but yeah, they're basically saying like, if you're skeptical, it's fine. That's fine for you. But I just want you to know that like people who believe in this believe that if you are skeptical, it actually opens up a portal wider than just like reality. Wow. So enjoy your life. (laughs) The area has a long history of being a haven to artists seeking inspiration and city folk needing grounding. It was here in Joshua Tree that Parsons would have many UFO sightings under the heavy influence of psychedelics. He would stay at the Joshua Tree Inn, which is still there today, and it basically looks the same as it did back in the 70s. I'm going to show you a picture of the Joshua Tree Inn, which I'm sure you've seen because it's like the only thing that's in Joshua Tree. Yes. So I'm looking at an aerial shot of the Joshua Tree Inn. And Uh it, yeah, I mean, it just looks like a very modest little, like, maybe like T-shaped or L-shaped motel. Um, And there's like a little pool in the middle. But yeah, everything around it is just barren desert. Yeah, it's like a hallmark of Joshua Tree when you drive through there. Everyone sees it. According to the sources, Graham and Keith Richards and their friends would take LSD and chase UFOs regularly in Joshua Tree. These enlightening psychedelic trips with exposure to extraterrestrial activity would have a lasting impression on Graham Parsons. Joshua Tree was a sacred place to him. It was a place away from the distractions of humanity. These trips represented more than just a weekend away with buddies. The desert landscape, with its cactus casting oblong shadows, highlighted the distance between earth and sun, the space between known and unknown. Boulders piled haphazardly in cloud-like formations were dropped marbles from God's pockets. Crisp stars stood sharply against a milky painted sky, illuminating the universe's secrets which beckoned to be discovered. It was on these trips that Parsons was able to grasp abstract universal ideas like love, life, and death in an informal setting. He loved the high desert so much. There's actually several existing photos of Graham and Joshua Tree. When Graham would stay in Joshua Tree, he would always drink at local bars, and he stayed at the Joshua Tree Inn in room number eight. In 1969, Parsons was in a band called the Flying Burrito Brothers with his OG friend, Chris Hillman. And one of the band's album covers features Parsons in Joshua Tree in his signature nudie suit. I'm gonna show you some pictures. Yeah, okay, so you guys, there is a picture that Nat is showing me of one, two, three, four, five guys. And yeah, they're dressed up like, again, like 60s, 70s fashion where they've got like the flared bright color pants. Um, And the last one that she's showing me, they're all wearing the same outfit. It's like a floral, um, almost like a Texas 
sort of um, 1970s like cowboy or mariachi outfit. I'm I'm trying to describe it in a way that it's would make like... It's called the nudie suit. Yeah. If you look up nudie suit, N-U-D-I-E, because I actually, when I was researching this episode, I was interested in it. So I looked it up. There was this guy and he's a fucking wild dude. And he um, basically came to America and just started making these crazy fucking suits with like rhinestones and all of this shit on them. And then they just took off and like everyone started wearing them and thought they were really cool. And to have a nudie suit, like a suit made by this guy named Nudie was like a big deal. So Parsons had one that had marijuana leaves on it and naked women on it and pills on it, which was pretty crazy for the time, especially since he was basically like a country music artist. And that's one of the things that really alienated him from country music. The country music people did not want anything to do with him because country music was all about like family ideals and, you know, God and like, well, whatever. And like, you know, they they didn't like this rock star sort of behavior, but he was the one who pioneered this. Because now when I think of country music, I feel like the country rock star is country music like they're all like this they're like super flamboyant they're over the top he's the one who sort of invented that so at the time people were not thinking that that was chill now parsons was a haunty so like i've said he would go to joshua tree and chase ufos in 1969 parsons was staying at a hotel actually the chateau marmont in la with his filmmaker friend and they heard about a ufo convention that was happening in joshua tree so they went and they just shot this ufo film there where parsons is playing this ufo but he's in a hazmat suit the whole time so you can't really tell it's him and it was called saturation 70 but the film was lost so we do have some photos from it so we know that it existed but i don't know just kind of like interesting that they were into this joshua tree ufo scene so there's them making this movie yeah, it, uh, I mean, it actually is very reminiscent of like stuff that people currently wear in Joshua Tree, right. like the long Timeless. flowing maxi dresses, the big hats on women, the scarves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a man in like, it's not army fatigues, but that's what it's supposed to look like, like camo print cargo pants and a car- uh, camo print long sleeve collared shirt. Around this time, Parsons, Keith Richards, and Richards' domestic partner, Anita, and some pals took a trip to Joshua Tree. Here's some photos that are taken by Michael Cooper, so you can see Parsons here in Joshua Tree wrapped in a blanket. Yeah, if you guys want to see these images, go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram, and you can follow along in real time. Nat is showing me a photo that is sepia-toned, and it is a man standing in the middle of the desert wearing like a big blanket around himself to keep warm. And then the next photo is Keith Richards wearing a like Southwestern printed blanket around himself to keep warm, along with some other people in big coats in the desert. Next photo, you can see people um, sitting on big rocks in the desert and Graham Parsons is playing his guitar. But in these photos, they're they're watching the sunrise so as we can imagine they were up all night partying doing whatever trips you know they wanted to trip and now the sun has come up they've watched this sunrise they're big partiers that's what i'm getting at most people when they go to joshua tree it is to trip like that is at least all the people i know like that's why you go there or to film a vlog yeah well you go there to like quote unquote commune with nature right because there's nothing else there um but you also go there usually to trip because there's really nothing to do. So you show up there and if you're into hiking, then like that's different. You can go hike or if you're into like camping, then you would camp. But generally speaking, like most of the people I know that go to Joshua Tree, it is to trip. 
So the friendship with Keith Richards and Graham Parsons was beneficial for Parsons' career, sort of. Parsons ended up getting fired from the Flying Burrito Brothers for spending too much time with Keith Richards and also excessive drug use. Who's to say which one was the real culprit? In early 1970, Parsons began working on a solo album with Emmylou Harris. And their voices were so harmonic that people thought that they were dating, even though they both said no. This is not really relevant to anything. I just thought it was interesting drama, and I thought you guys should know about it. <laughs> Parsons signed a solo deal for AM Records, and he moved in with producer Terry Melcher. Do you remember Terry Melcher, the manager producer for the Beach Boys, who supposedly encouraged the band to part ways with Charles Manson before the Manson yes. murders? Well, yes. he makes a reappearance here. And in my research for this episode, I was able to find out that our buddy Terry Melcher had a lot in common with Parsons. They were both musicians and they both really liked cocaine and heroin. <laughs> Melcher and Parsons found that their recording sessions were really unproductive due to their shared common interests. And eventually their project was dissolved with Graham becoming uninterested. According to their mutual friend, Eve Babbitts, the tapes that Terry Melcher and Graham Parsons made from those sessions are like of mythical proportions in the music industry and nobody knows where the tapes ended up. Some people think that Parsons took them. Some people think that Melcher took them. But either way, these missing Parsons and Melcher cocaine-fueled albums are essentially the missing Fabergé eggs of rock music. They're priceless, and they'd also look great in a glass cabinet yeah. on display. So I thought that was weird because Terry Melcher, like when we were reading in the... When I was reading about him, like as associated with the Beach Boys and the Manson murders, like everything was like, oh yeah, Terry Melcher was this real cool head prevailing dude who was just like don't be friends with Charles Manson and there was like not right. really any mention of him being involved in like drugs or partying with any of them but when I was reading about Graham Parsons I found that he was actually like super big party dude so now this makes me think that my hypothesis from the Charles Manson murder episode that everyone was lying sacks of shit and that they were all involved is actually accurate or it could also be that Charles Manson was so fucking weird that even the people that were were, like strung out knew he was fucking weird oh my god that just gave me nightmares think if you're having yeah. a trip and you can tell that someone in the room with you is actually a murderer yes dude okay so not the same but similar there's been a few times when I was much younger and I was heavily under the influence that I could tell there was someone in the group that I was sitting with who was just weird and like they weren't high at all and that was like the most uncomfortable feeling to be around a bunch of people <laughs> that you know you're like having a great time like laughing and stuff and like you're wearing weird clothes and like making silly jokes because you're all in this like state of mind and then to realize that there's someone there who's wearing weird clothes and like saying weird stuff because they're actually just a fucking scary skinwalker <laughs> and they're not actually under the influence of anything and that's just like their fake personality that they put on before they eat your soul nightmare fuel in 1971 Parsons accompanied the Rolling Stones on their 1971 UK tour and he was in hopes to be signed by the new Rolling Stones record group so he was kind of like just hanging out being like I guess if I'm around they like me I'm here you guys have like a record you're rich you're super famous I'm here what's up yeah so Parsons and Richard had talked about recording a duo album under their the Rolling Stones records group. And at that time, they both moved into this beautiful villa in France, which would become uber famous after the Rolling Stones recorded their exile on Main Street album while living there. And I hear your 
Have you ever heard of this villa, the Nelco Tabilla? No, never. Okay. It's this crazy fucking villa in France. It's like right on the Mediterranean in the south of France. You can see it right there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Natalia is showing me pictures of like a bit like a giant like two story or three story mansion. And it looks like what you would picture when you think of a French villa, like old time, like columns Mm -hmm. and big elaborate it looks like you can have roof access and there's like balconies and yeah it's huge yeah it's gigantic it's basically a palace it had 54 rooms in it and it's basically like this giant shit show so what ends up happening is that the rolling stones went down there from england because they're trying to evade their taxes so they just went and posted up in the south of france it's this super extravagant palace with chandeliers in the bathroom and stuff and it even has its own haunted history apparently the gestapo which was the nazi secret police had used to own it back in the 40s oh shit the time that the rolling stones are living here it's basically like the six month long drug fueled party the rolling stones were actually stealing power from a train station at one point to power their recording equipment and people just showed up and would never leave because keith richards would just be like hey stay here who cares and so john lennon showed up Graham Parsons showed up. There was an entire tribal band from Bengal that showed up. There were drug dealers that showed up. There were petty thieves that showed up and who stole all of the drugs and took a lot of the furniture. And there were groupies who showed up and just never left. There were even kids there. There was an eight-year-old who was at the villa and that eight-year-old is now like grown up in a full-blown man and he revealed in 2010 that he remembered his drug dealing father had hidden packets of coke in his shirt on their flight from Ireland to get it there to the villa. But I mean really that was just sort of what went on. It was like you had your breakfast, you know, you had your dope, you know. (laughs) Yep, yep. The reason that we know so much about this villa is because there was a photographer who stayed there for six months long and photographed it. According to an article for the Daily Mail detailing the photo exhibition from the stint from February 2022 entitled One Summer in France with the Stones, Dominique Tarlet's photo diary from his six months in the French Riviera with the legendary rockers in 1971 feature in new exhibition. The photographer says that basically he photographed the band and he just thought like, oh, this is, we just did a photo shoot. Cool. And he was about to leave. And then Keith Richards was like, no, 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 you have a room here. Like stay. And then he just ended up staying for six months. Wow. Yeah. He went on car rides with the family, boat rides. He was at meals with them. He went to Mick Jagger and Bianca's wedding in St. Tropez. He, he witnessed all of that happening. Here's some pictures of that with Graham Parsons there. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Natalia is showing me some black and white and sepia-toned old-timey photos of this beautiful villa, the interior of the villa. There are, yeah, groupies just like laid out half-naked, lounging around on this furniture. And then there's like rock stars and big chandeliers and people playing instruments and everyone's barefoot. And it's like very much like hippie, but not 60s hippie, like not flower child hippie. Like this is the rock and roll free spirit mm-hmm. like embodiment in these yeah photos. and it just looks like it's just like a giant party like you can just tell that they've been up for like eight hours just you know and like yeah. trashing and like trashing, trashing the villa totally. yeah while parsons and the stones were in this villa 
that album XL on Main Street was recorded, but we're not sure how much of an impact Parsons had on the album. This is the beginning of Parsons' downfall. During the time that Parsons was living at the villa, sources are really mixed on his behavior. Some sources say that he was incapacitated the entire time and that he was fighting with his girlfriend, who was this ex- aspiring actress Gretchen Burl the whole time. And she was like, you're holding me back from my acting and modeling career. And he was like fuck you. I don't know what he said, but he was basically like (laughs) something that would make someone who was saying that angry. And then they (laughs) continued to fight about it. (laughs) The fighting and drugs became so uncomfortable that Parsons was asked to leave by Richard's longtime domestic partner, Anita Pallenberg. But decades later in Keith Richard's memoir, Richard suggests that perhaps Mick Jagger was the catalyst for Parsons removal from the estate because Richard was spending too much time playing music with Parsons. So Keith Richards like dropped a line decades later where he was like, you know, actually it was Mick Jagger who said Parsons should leave because I was spending too much time playing music with Parsons. Um, Jealous much? Because he was his new bestie. (laughs) Side note, the same year that Parsons left that villa in France, Keith Richards was found guilty of trafficking trafficking cannabis into France. He was fined 5,000 francs and he was banned from the country for two years. Oh, that, I mean, I thought it would be worse. I thought it would be like jail time or something. Well, for the Rolling Stones? Yeah. They were probably sad. They were like, oh, we he has to leave for two years? Yeah. We're really sorry. Why did you do that? And then like all of the officials are crying for the next 10 days. That's like, true. We had to ban him. We can't so cool. go to his shows anymore. By this time, Parsons is fully addicted to heroin. He had attended rehab and supposedly got clean, but he was definitely not sober. Some sources suggest that getting kicked out of the villa was the catalyst to Parsons' rehab and recovery, but others insist that it was just all super messy and Parsons never really got it together again. After leaving the Stones' villa, Parsons married Gretchen Burrell in 1971. It was not a great idea, and it was super toxic. They separated only a few months after they got married, but they had yet to formally divorce when Parsons' health began to deteriorate due to the history of using. Having gone to rehab, Parsons attempted to get back into good graces with the Rolling Stones in 1972 for their American tour, but it was to no avail. Now, the sources don't specify, but I'm just assuming based off of what I've read and personal experience that Parsons and his ex were probably still fighting like a lot and probably still hanging out together, probably, you know, just like sleeping together, spending the night with each other. Uh, Someone's not kicked out of the house. No, someone's back in the house, you know, just like that type of thing. And it was just just like the beginning of the end until something that nobody could have predicted happened in July of 1973 a carelessly tossed cigarette burned Graham's home down in Topanga Canyon all the way to the ground his wife and him escaped with only the clothes on their back and Graham's guitar he lost everything other than his Jaguar and his guitar Wow. It was then that Graham began to live with his manager, Phil Kaufman, while he waited for the next tour to start in October. And this was the real end of his marriage. I mean, once a house literally burns down, that's like a figurative saying of like a marriage ending. Oh, like the house burned down, right? Right. But like it literally burned down. And imagine whoever's fault that was, like whoever tossed that cigarette was probably like, how are you ever, if you're in a relationship where you're fighting with someone about like everything and then someone literally burns your fucking house down, like you're not going to recover from that. No, 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 absolutely not. 
It was during this time that Parsons began heading back to Joshua Tree Park to vacation and to escape his relationship and gather inspiration. He always stayed in room number eight at the Joshua Tree Inn. And around this time, he also began dating his high school sweetheart once more, Margaret Fisher. It seemed that life was full of new beginnings for the recently rehabbed Parsons. But once more, tragedy befell. When Parsons had quit the band The Birds to hang out with the Rolling Stones, he was replaced by guitarist Clarence White. But July 15, 1973, Clarence White, Graham's former bandmate from The Birds, was struck down by a drunk driver just after 2 a.m. while loading equipment into his car after a concert with his brother. Graham was extremely shaken by this event. At Clarence's funeral, Graham led the entire church in a sing-along of the gospel song, Farther Along. Which deals with themes of the unknown, like why do bad things happen to good people? And it attempts to answer those questions with the knowledge being discovered farther along, perhaps in heaven. Following the funeral, Graham composed the song, In My Hour of Darkness, as a partial tribute to Clarence. Both of those songs I've linked in the show notes because they're both really, really good. And I think that everyone should listen to them, especially if you're going through a hard time. I listened to them for this episode and I was like, oh shit, this is like my new go-to songs. They're just really, really good. The death of Graham's friend and especially the funeral fucked Parsons up, like enough to consider making plans for his own funeral. So this is where Graham Parsons seals his fate, we shall say. So the funeral left a lasting impression on Graham. He noticed the formality and the stiffness of the music. There was like sad shit happening. Like people were sad. Their outfits sucked. It was like super sad. So the ceremony that was honoring Clarence's life was really nothing like the way that Clarence lived his life. I mean, Clarence was a rock star. Right. Why the fuck is his funeral going to be like this bad music and ugly outfits when his life was good music? Music and great outfits. Yeah. No, I feel that. This is just a question that I have for everyone. This is not like part of the story. Yeah. I mean, why? Yeah. Why? If you live like a rock star, you got to die like a rock star. If you're not going to die like a rock star, then it ruins your whole legacy, right? Like if your funeral sucks. You're the one who said you wanted to be shot out of a cannon into the air and explode into red mist and feed whales yeah. in an Elvis Presley suit. And I stand by that. And I it's recorded now twice. So somebody better do that when I die. Okay. Well, you're about to find out. Natalia just murders me that way. <laughs> she, you can't shoot me out of a cannon. So Graham chose this moment to decide how he wanted to be buried. He made a death pact with his now road manager, Phil Kaufman, to be cremated at Capstone Rock in Joshua Tree. In Phil Kaufman's own words, quote, just a couple of months before he died, Graham and I went to the funeral of the Birds guitarist Clarence White. We'd had a few sherbets before we went, and we were saying that if Clarence had had his choice, he wouldn't have chosen that kind of high-mass Catholic funeral with all of that mumbo-jumbo. So Graham said, you know, this is bullshit. If I die, I want someone to have a few beers, take me out to the desert, and burn my body. And I said, all right, it's a deal. But would you do the same for me? And he said, yeah. Kaufman 
turned out to be super fucking serious about that. September 17th, 1973, Parsons decided to drive his brand new Jaguar to Joshua Tree Park to seek inspiration, avoid his ex, let off some steam, fucking forget about his burned down house and that he doesn't have a band and the Rolling Stones guys don't want to hang out with him. Accompanying Parsons on the trip from LA was his personal assistant, Michael Martin, and Martin's girlfriend, Dale McElroy. Parsons' high school sweetheart, Margaret Fisher, flew in from San Francisco for the trip. During this visit, Parsons' attorney was back home preparing divorce papers to serve Parsons' wife while Parsons would be out of town. During this particular trip, like all of the trips before, Graham was staying in room number eight at the Joshua Tree Inn. The group visited several bars in the nearby town of Yucca Valley where they would drink and then Graham would return to his room to consume barbiturates and then he would go back out and they would drink. Basically, they were just partying, getting fucked up the entire time that they were at Joshua Tree. Parsons was super loaded on alcohol and barbiturates, and he kept wandering off into the desert alone, perhaps, to chase UFOs. The first night that they were there, they had, I guess, smoked all of the weed that they had brought for the entire trip. So then the next day, Parsons' assistant, Martin, had to drive all the way back to LA to get more weed, and he left his girlfriend there with Graham Parsons. When Martin returned, Parsons asked Fisher and McElroy to drink with him, but they both declined. Apparently, Fisher didn't like alcohol and McElroy was recovering from hepatitis. At this, Parsons shrugged it off and he said, okay, quote, I'll drink for the three of us, end quote. And he proceeded to drink six double tequila shots. Oof. Yeah, right? Fuck. Uh, yeah, I, I would throw. I mean, that's that's alcohol poisoning. There's no way. Yeah, I don't it. I don't get that. So I'm assuming that he probably like had double a double shot made for each person that was there and got it from the bar and brought him back and was just like, hey, guys, let's take a shot. And she was like, no, I'm recovering from hepatitis. And everyone was like, I don't like alcohol, which, by the way, I feel like I don't like alcohol and I'm recovering from hepatitis are all very valid reasons to not drink now in 2022. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But back then you don't like alcohol was not a valid excuse to not drink. And that's what sent him into this spiral, which he's going to go on now. So he just chugs all of those shots. And after that, the group goes back to the Joshua Tree Inn where he's staying at. At this point, he purchases morphine from just some fucking random lady who injects him with morphine in room number one. And then Parsons overdoses on the combination of alcohol and morphine and trace barbiturates that were already in his system. As Parsons began to appear to be overdosing, Fisher gives him an ice cube suppository. About the overdose, Phil Kaufman and Dale McElroy have given interviews about the incident. So I'm just going to read what they said. Phil Kaufman said, quote, by the way, Phil Kaufman is like the star of this whole story. You're going to see. I love this guy's personality. As Graham's road manager, I spent a lot of time finding his drug stashes and getting rid of them, but he could always get more. In Joshua Tree, he ran into the singer Scott McKenzie's ex-wife who could supply him and they spent the day drinking and doing drugs drugs. Margaret was on the same drugs as Graham, and they were both pretty far gone by the evening. Dale said, a few hours later, Margaret rushed up to my door in a panic and told me that Graham had overdosed and to go get some ice cubes and meet her in room number one. Phil says, Margaret was familiar with the effects of heroin and morphine. She knew that heroin was a downer and it makes your body lethargic, and an ice cube suppository would shock the body awake again. Dale said, Margaret quickly took down his pants and pushed two or three ice cubes up his ass. To my astonishment, in a matter of seconds, he had regained consciousness and he made a joke about what we were doing with his pants down. He had gotten up and began walking around the room. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Phil said, 
Michael, meanwhile, had gone back to LA to get more drugs, so it was only Dale and Margaret. Dale said, I saw how completely wrecked Margaret was, and I asked what they had been taking. She told me it was morphine. Phil says, but Graham told her he was okay, and he went back to his room. So Graham basically had overdosed, and then they'd give him this ice cube suppository, and then he wakes back up and just starts stroking around. It's like, everything's cool. Thanks. And he's like, leave me alone. I'm just going to go to sleep or whatever. Now, anyone who's sober would be like, okay, this person just overdosed. I'm not going to let them like go lay down in a bed and fall asleep right now. But she was like fucked up on drugs too. Dale says, after an hour or more, Margaret came back to my room and told me she wanted to go out and get some food for Graham. The last thing she said was to keep an eye on Graham. I took a book to the room and I found Graham passed out on the bed. After about 20 minutes, his breathing started to change. It became very labored and I became scared. I wondered what to do. Should I get help or just stay with him and give him artificial respiration? Phil says, Dale tried to save his life by giving him mouth to mouth, but it didn't help. Then Margaret came back and they got the people in the hotel office to call for an ambulance. Parsons was dead on arrival at High Desert Memorial Hospital just 15 minutes after 1 a.m. Fisher said later in an interview, if there was one day she could ever do over, it would be that one. She said, seeing the light leave somebody's eyes is nothing somebody should ever witness or share. After the tragedy, Fisher and McElroy returned to LA with Kaufman, who then threw the rest of Parsons' drugs in the desert. After years of using, a lethal combination of morphine and tequila took out Graham Parsons at only 26. Although Graham had a couple records and even a few tours, his most haunted legacy is what he did posthumously. According to the sources, Graham's stepfather, Bob, was interested in Graham's fortune, but because Graham left no will and he was like traveling and just constantly, you know, like staying staying in one hotel, staying in someone else's house, whatever. He didn't have residency established anywhere. So Graham's stepdad was thinking, okay, if I can get him to Louisiana where I live right now and have him buried here, that will establish his residency. And then everything that he has made will go to me. So I don't know if that's true or not. There's just like a few things that point to that. And most of the sources say that's what was happening. So Graham's stepdad is like, let's get Graham back here ASAP. And he plans this funeral, but he doesn't invite any of Graham's music industry friends. And that just really didn't sit well with any of Graham's friends. So Phil says, quote, I stayed home at my house on Chandler in LA for a couple of days, but I knew what I had to do. I had to fulfill my promise to Graham. I called the mortuary in Joshua Tree to find out where Graham's body was. They told me he was en route to Continental Airlines at LAX, from where he would be shipped back to his stepfather in New Orleans. As it happened, Dale owned a big Cadillac hearse, so I told her I wanted it, and I needed Michael to help me. The people who were on this trip with Graham Parsons when he died was Martin, Dale, Martin's uh, girlfriend or whatever, and Fisher, uh, Margaret Fisher, his girlfriend, And Phil wasn't there. He was back in L.A. But these are all of the people, not Margaret, though. She she wasn't involved in this next incident. But these are all the people who sort of banded together to get Graham Parsons back. To fulfill Parsons' final wishes, Phil Kaufman and Michael Martin stole his body from LAX. They were driving a hearse with broken windows and no license plates that belonged to Martin's girlfriend that she used to carry tents and gear on camping trips. They were also wearing cowboy hats and sunglasses, and they somehow convinced the airport staff that Parsons' family had changed their mind about the flight and that, like, he wanted to go from, uh, they wanted him to go from Van Nuys Airport instead of LAX. So I don't know how they convinced them. In Kaufman's own words, he says, So Michael and I set off in the hearse wearing our Sin City jackets and cowboy hats. 
Our whole team was me and Michael, assisted by Jose, Jack, Jim, and Mickey. Jose Cuervo Tequila, Jack Daniels Whiskey, Jim Beam Bourbon, and Mickey Big Mouth Beer. We were pretty well oiled. They had a holding area in the hangar at the airport where they take the caskets for onward shipment, and we got there at about 10 o'clock on Thursday night. Before the casket could get off of the plane, they showed up in that hearse and they told the attendant that that the family had changed their mind. Phil says, At first, the attendant was suspicious. He was looking at the way we were dressed, so I just said that we were doing overtime, and I basically hustled him into hurrying up. As I'm signing the papers, I'm using the name Jeremy Nobody. A police car pulls up and blocks (laughs) our exit. The cop gets out, and he's just standing around, so I yelled at him, Hey, give us a hand with the stiff, will ya? And he goes, Uh, okay. And the cop helped us load the body into the hearse. Michael got behind the wheel. And as we drove out, we hit the hangar door because we were so drunk. There was enough space for a plane to taxi through that door. And he hit the door in a car. Oh, (laughs) my God. The cop looked at us. And I'm thinking, boy, we're in trouble now. But he just moved his car and off we went. So they loaded the coffin into the hearse and then they drive 200 miles to Joshua Tree. And on the way to Joshua Tree, they fill up a tin can with five gallons of gas. Kaufman says, we stopped at a gas station and bought five gallons of gasoline. Then off we went in our drunken stupor with Graham in the back and drove out beyond the Joshua Tree Inn. By now it's like 1 a.m. up to the National Park until we reached Cap Rock, which was about as far as we could go in our state. They get to Capstone Rock. They drag the coffin out of the hearse, but they're so wasted that they're just fumbling the casket. Kaufman says, We opened up the back of the hearse, but the casket dropped as Michael was pulling it out. Michael was really edgy, but I decided we had to say goodbye to Graham, so I just opened up the casket. And the hinges obviously hadn't been oiled, so it creaked really loud. And then there he was, laying naked, with surgical tape covering where they had done the autopsy. We used to do this thing, you know, when you're a kid, where you point to someone's chest, and then you look down and you go, zip! up to their nose. Well, that was the last thing that I did to Graham. And Michael goes, don't touch him, man. But you know, he was dead, right? They emptied the gas tin onto the body and they said their goodbyes and then they struck a match. But when they struck this match, a gigantic fireball flame arose that was like visible for miles all around. And so like everyone immediately knew what they were doing. Kaufman says, I poured the gasoline all over him and I said, all right, Graham, on your way. I struck the match and I threw it into the gasoline. And when you do that, it consumes an enormous amount of oxygen and it makes a big And as we were watching, the body actually bubbled. And then we saw his ashes flying up into the night. Then we saw some headlights approaching from across the desert. We thought that it might be the park rangers, so we just beat it out of there. The police had come to investigate, and the boys abandoned the half-burned body, and they escaped. But apparently, tourists discovered the charred remains the next day. Sources on this are mixed. Some say that they escaped. Others say that the police chased Kaufman and his friends as, like, suspects for DUI, because they're just swerving all over the place in this, like, fucking hurt with broken windows and no plates, but apparently they escaped that as well. Kaufman says, on the way back to LA, there was a lot of traffic. There'd been some sort of accident. We rear-ended a car on the freeway and a cop leaned over and looked in the hearse just as Michael opened the door and all of these beer bottles fell out. And the cop says, you two stay here. And he handcuffed us together and he went back to his cop car. 
Well, Michael was really skinny, so he just slipped his handcuff off, and then we both just took down the nearest off-ramp. When we got back to my house, I got somebody to just cut the handcuffs off. This is fucking metal, right? Oh my god. The two were arrested several days later after they figured out that the charred remains were Graham's, and because there was not a law against stealing a dead body, what was left of the body was just eventually buried in Louisiana. There was no law? I guess not. In Phil's own words, he says, Oh my God. Several days later, Graham's death hit the headlines in the local papers. Rockstar's body burned in bizarre desert ritual. Everybody in Los Angeles knew I did it, so it didn't take long for the cops to figure it out. The cops came to my house and they questioned me. Did you have necrophiliac sex with him? All that sort of bullshit. (laughs) As it happened, Arthur Penn and Gene Hackman were shooting some scenes for a film called Night Moves at my house. As I'm being taken out to the cop car, Hackman and Penn are just standing watching and they ask what was going on. When someone explained, Arthur Penn said, Gene, we're shooting the wrong movie here. Later, when I was driven home, everyone stopped filming and they just gave me a round of applause. Eventually, when we went to court, all they could charge us with was stealing the casket. The body itself had no intrinsic value, so unless someone filed a complaint, there was no law broken. They find us $1,300. Graham's stepfather had bought the cheapest casket he could get, and Dale paid the fine. So Graham's stepfather, I guess, only fined them for the cost of the casket? Yeah, I mean, yeah, If that's crazy that there was no law at the time against stealing a dead body. Now that's definitely a crime, regardless of whether or not the body has a monetary value, like... That would be like desecration of a corpse or, you know, something like that. It sounds like there was just no laws at all. Like, how are those guys driving that hearse wasted with like alcohol bottles in their car with no plates, no windows? And then they literally rear end someone and a cop sees them open the door and all these bottles fall out. And he's like, you guys, and just handcuffs them together and then just like walks back to his car. That would never happen now because now a cop would be like, you guys, And then he would like literally just stand there with a gun pointed at them until other cops showed up and then maybe they would end up getting shot. Yeah, I don't know. Wild West for sure. The site of Parsons cremation is known as the Cap Rock parking lot. And according to Wikipedia, there's a local myth that brings Parsons fans out to this large rock flake that's known to rock climbers as the Graham Parsons Memorial Hand Traverse. This myth was popularized when someone added a slab that marked Parsons cremation to the Memorial Rock. The slab has since been removed by the U.S. National Park Service and relocated to the Joshua Tree Inn. There's no monument at Cap Rock noting Parsons cremation at the site and Joshua Tree Park guides are given the option to tell the story of Parsons cremation during tours but there's no mention of the act in the official maps or brochures. And fans regularly assemble simple rock structures and writings on the rock which the Park Service will just like remove periodically. In Kaufman's own words he says that dying was a great career move for Graham. So what do you think of that story? wild absolutely wild has anyone turned this into a movie yet it has been a movie it was a movie with johnny knoxville in it it's just the perfect amount of chaos for it to be a movie script like it doesn't seem like it should be real like you said how is it possible that these people are driving around in a busted broken down hearse no license plates wearing sunglasses and cowboy hats and rhinestones Mm -hmm. drunk as fuck swerving all over the freeway crashing into an airplane hangar Mm rear-ending someone they drive out to the middle of this national park uh grab their friend's naked body that's been cut open and then sealed shut again with tape Mm -hmm. throw him onto a bonfire and then that 
okay, that part is the weirdest to me is that they didn't wait to like make sure his whole body burned up. They just throw him onto this pile. They see the skin bubbling and then they see headlights in the distance and they're like, good enough. We've carried out enough of his dying wishes, like good enough. And then just like fucking skedaddle. Yeah. Maybe they were thinking like, oh, it'll end up burning up like before or maybe they're just so right. drunk that they like couldn't even see what was happening because fires are yeah. really hot right like you can't get too close to it so maybe they just didn't know i don't know maybe like yeah as, as we learned in our um spontaneous human combustion episode though if you guys want to go back and listen to that it's actually pretty fucking hard to burn a body and cremate a body completely they said that there was only 35 pounds left of cremated remains that were left over wow well i mean i guess his stepdad got what he wanted yeah. right because he the rest of the remains were buried in louisiana and then his friends kind of got what they wanted because they at least mm-hmm. felt like they tried to carry out his their friends dying wishes yeah so one of the things that's interesting is that phil kaufman is still alive this manager guy and he's 87 now but i'm thinking like he went through the, all of this effort to do that for grant parsons and it's now been super like published that this is what he did for his friend to keep this promise and he said he wanted the same fate so i'm wondering when phil kaufman dies if there's going to be like extra security around his body or if like someone's just like who's going to go do this for him now well maybe yeah i think we've got to do do it it? this is a very (laughs) fucking haunted story um to just imagine someone stealing someone's corpse lighting it on fire and then leaving before it's done right. and and escaping that i think the craziest part is nobody went to jail in this story like that is right. the craziest part that is the thing that i really miss about this time period obviously is different you know if you're someone who's not like a white country rock star i'm sure your fate might be a little bit different but it seems like a lot of people got away with shit for like the cops would just be like oh he was yeah. just drunk you know he's not like actually a bad right, guy yeah. right? hard to like imagine they- now I know because now it just seems like anyone could just fucking snap at any moment and be like a murderer, killer, freak. But back then it was just like, no, that's just a nice guy. He was just kind of weird. Like, yeah, he chopped down a tree that he wasn't supposed to, but like, it's fine. Like where now they're like, oh, you chopped down a tree? You were trespassing? We can sue you for that? Also, that's fucked up because what did the tree do to you? And now there's an MSN article written about it and people are commenting below and doxing yeah. you. Yeah, the certainly the emergence of the internet and um like closed circuit television and body cams like would make this just totally impossible to happen yeah right like the cop might like who pulled him over or whatever might have just kind of thought it was cool or he's just like man i really don't want to chase after these people i'm kind of embarrassed that they got out of my handcuffs like i'll just say that this never happened So apparently room number eight at the Joshua Tree Inn is now haunted, and it's also dedicated to Parsons' memory. There's tons of artwork featuring Graham all over it. It's also available for rent, and it's touted as the last room that Graham slept in. The website reads, quote, Graham Parsons' room number eight includes king bed with private bathroom, shower, fridge, microwave, cable TV, and private outdoor patio. This is where the father of cosmic American music went from rock star to rock legend, and some say his spirit still lives. Bring your guitar and write songs. Rate is based on double occupancy. Additional guests are $20 each per night. I mean, I think maybe we got to go there. Yeah, I think so. Here's a picture of it. Oh, wow. Um, So I'm looking at a modest um, hotel room. It actually looks more like a bedroom than a hotel room. 
Um, and it has, yeah, like mm-hmm. neutral colors, browns and oranges and two dressers, two lamps that don't match each other. Yeah, it definitely gives me like mm-hmm. 1970s desert vibes, like very little has been changed in the past um, years. Right. Some believe that that room is haunted by the spirit of Graham Parsons. And because of this, it's booked out months in advance. The owner who purchased the inn in 2002, like decided to make this whole room dedicated to Parsons. But the owners before that had tried to cover up the whole overdose situation. However, there's a fucking ghost there. So how can you cover that shit up? So they they have like a booklet next to the bed where people can leave messages. Some of the messages say, from one grievous angel to another. Another message reads, cosmic vibes all around this room. Joshua Tree always provides the perfect recharge. And another says, Graham, it was a little trippy when you locked me in here. (laughs) That's right. Graham is known for locking people in the room. What the fuck? Apparently, the door just locks when you get in there and like you cannot get out. And because of this, people who work there and like clean the room and stuff are required to carry cell phones with them all the time in case they get locked into rooms. Oh my God, that is scary. Also, the mirror on the wall that's like supposedly the last place he saw his reflection shakes. And then if you're staying in room number nine next door, you will hear music and like partying coming from room number eight, even though there's nobody there. Also, don't know if this is related or not, but they seem to think that it is related. Back in the day, there was this white cat that like wandered onto the property and the cat had a green eye and a blue eye. And Graham Parsons had a green eye and a blue eye. And so then people think that maybe the cat was him reincarnated. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so interesting about the cat. And a lot of like ghost like enthusiasts say, oh, you know, when someone dies, they don't go back to the place that they die. They go back to the place that they loved. And in this case, Graham died in the place that he loved. So they think that's why his spirit is there. The best part of this story is that um, so many different people have stayed in that room number eight, right? One of them was actually Casey Musgraves while she was performing at Stagecoach. Oh, yeah. And she goes there every single year and she always stays in room number eight. Also, Grace Potter and the Nocturnals rented out the entire property when uh, they were performing nearby. Also, the owner says that the most consistent type of guests who stay in the room are like artist type people, but also 60s folk rock singer Donovan would stay there. And the best part of this whole story is that Phil Kaufman, the man who uh, drove the hearse to get this body cremation wish done, he will go back to the Joshua Tree Inn frequently and celebrate his friend's memory. Oh, I love that. I'm going to show you a picture of this guy because he's um, what you would think he looks like. Okay, Natalia is showing me. I'm. Is that like the cover of a magazine or something? Or so he, he wrote this book called Road Mangler Deluxe because he was a road manager for all these different rock bands for like several years, and he became known as the Mangler because he was like a a Wrangler road manager. Because like a huge part of being someone's road manager when you're road manager to a rock star is just keeping them out of trouble, right? Like right, right. Making sure they get to their appointments where they're supposed to be. Making sure that like they're not hanging out with the groupies and getting too like high before they're supposed to perform etc etc so um he was he has like so many crazy stories and you can buy that book called road mangler deluxe i think on amazon by phil kaufman i might have to do that might have to give it a read yeah what an interesting life to have led and to have just escaped any consequences from the law i mean i know they had to pay a fine but like damn all things considered that's like a great fucking deal 
And at first, Joshua Tree was like, no, fuck you. This didn't happen. Like, stop climbing this rock. Stop saying this happened here. And they would like remove any sort of memorial stuff that people would leave there, like notes and whatever, shrines and stuff. Now they're finally adding a memorial plaque at Capstone Rock that tells the story of Graham Parsons. That, you know, they should do that because I feel like the more you try to suppress a haunting, the more Mm. haunted it gets. You just got to embrace the haunted side of life. It's going to be a great draw for tourism. It's going to be a moneymaker for the national park. More people are going to want to camp there. More people are going to want to climb those rocks. More people are going to want to stay at that inn. So yeah, I think that's what you have to do. You have to embrace it. You got to memorialize it. And you've just got to be like, yeah, this is part of our fucking weird ass haunted history. So what? Mm. I think that Graham... I think that he would have been really happy that this is the way he went out with this legacy. I totally agree. Yeah, that's really all you can hope for when you die is that your life wasn't for nothing and that people don't just forget you, right? So if if now he's become like a legend, even amongst people who don't really like you know, outlaw country or country rock or 70s classic rock, like even people that don't like that genre probably now know who he Mm -hmm. is because he has this whole like larger than life posthumous legend associated with him. So that's, uh, yeah, that's all you can ask for as a rock star, especially that's fucking tight. I love his like carefree vibe. I don't know. When I was researching this story, it like really helped me to feel more like carefree and chill. And it was also like, kind of want a cigarette and like a beer right now. You know, this sounds yeah. nice. Yeah, definitely. Um, you got to live fast, die young for people that are, are part of that scene, mm-hmm. I feel like. For example, Elvis, like that sucks that he like died kind of older and like bloated <laughs> while he was trying to take a shit. Like that sucks that that's your legacy, right? So I think for a lot of these rock stars that do die young, it's like, before you're washed up. I mean, I th- right. It's great for your career. Yeah. You read a quote where someone was like, oh, the best thing that ever happened to Graham Parsons career was that he died. And, it, you know, that sucks. Yeah, That's what Phil Kaufman said. Yeah. Like it sucks, but it's also true. Right. It's the same with Marilyn Monroe. Like she was basically mm-hmm. bankrupt when she died. She had nothing. And now she's worth like $300 million based off of just selling her image to all of these other brands, you know? Yeah. She's beloved. Like she didn't have time to make people be like fuck Marilyn Monroe you know like everybody loves her now after her death I was actually reading something on TikTok the other day Madonna popped up on my for you page and she she's looking rough and somebody had commented on there being like man the worst thing that ever happened to Madonna is that she didn't die young and like (gasps) that is like obviously super fucked up like Madonna's a legend like you know she what her impact on pop culture is undeniable but at the same time I was reading that and I was like damn there's some truth to that because she got a shit ton of plastic surgery that looks bad she is just like on TikTok like doing shit that like doesn't really make sense and like she's a grandma and it's like damn like I kind of get it like I kind of get it like as a musician I'm sure that that sucks to be like I am the biggest person in my genre or was or like I don't know you're trying to live out your glory days as an older person and I'm sure it's really hard like you can't ever get that back yeah I mean I I don't know I think it's kind of like gangster to just like be 
unpopular you know on tiktok and like when you're that you know what i mean i saw the tiktoks you're talking about like i get it. yeah she's got filler she's got all this stuff she looks kind of like an alien now and she's acting super weird she was doing one that was like why did you do that and then the voice was like i don't know or something it was like a weird tiktok i saw but i was also like that's so madonna like even when she was popular she was doing shit that was fucking weird and people didn't like like she had the super thick eyebrows with the super blonde hair and everyone else was like really natural and like more conservative looking and like she was pulling up wearing like like bride outfits with like kinky sex toys and stuff she was like madonna right so she was always doing shit that was weird it's just that now everyone thinks that it's sad because she's no longer like young yeah i'll play devil's advocate i think madonna getting a bunch of plastic surgery and posting a 10 second tiktok isn't pushing the envelope whereas before she was known for pushing the envelope so i think maybe that's what people are talking about is like oh man it sucks to just see her hopping on trends instead of like creating the trends but what can you do we're now off on a tangent but it is like an accomplishment that she's lived this long living like such a hard and fast crazy fucking life when she was like in the scene right so maybe that's impressive on its own i don't know what it would be like to spend an afternoon with madonna is she just like a regular person who's you know just like chilling in sweatpants all day or is she like super fucking weird and like gets up and like meditates and like draws like a sh- like the energy down from the heavens into her body and like you know walks around her room like and playing old records and like wearing feather boas and dancing I don't know I think both are valid. I'm more interested in like the second one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope that she's doing well. And I, Madonna, man. if you want to come on this podcast, come on, please fucking come on our podcast. I know you have had some haunted experiences. We would love to have you on here. I know that there's somebody who listens to this who's like through six degrees of separation can somehow get to contact with Madonna. Right. I feel like we're the perfect platform to help her have a voice that's heard. We're not going to like, give you a super stiff lame interview that makes you look old and weird we're gonna make <laughs> you relevant and look cool so come on our podcast that's right and you know what Graham Parsons ghost if you yes. are out there and you're listening to this come on our Please. show and if you guys want us to go visit Joshua Tree Inn and stay in room eight definitely drop a comment on the photo dump for this episode which is at let's get haunted on Instagram I think we should go there and I think we should like get guitars and tambourines and like try to form a band while and we're just staying piss in this him room. off because neither of us <laughs> can play guitar or tambourine and just piss him off. Do you think he would just like take over our bodies and help us? There's only one way to find out and that's to hold a seance in room eight mm. of the Joshua Tree Inn. That's true. Well, thank you, Natalia. The moral of the story is make your dying wishes known and then make sure your friends carry them out against all the odds. They got to steal your body. They got to make that shit happen for you. You know, I would do that for you. What you said. Shove me into a cannon. Shoot me off of the Santa Monica Pier. Dress me up as Elvis Presley first. Make sure my body explodes in midair as a pod of whales are coming through yeah you guys i've already been to jail this year i don't give a fuck yeah so we'll do that <laughs> do it yeah okay cool you want to do our sign off uh brb gotta go trash a villa in france bye, bye.